This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Joining me today to discuss the science and regulatory policy related to a bioprinting of human organs is Dan Troy, Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Boston-based Valo or Valo Health. Dan is also a former FDA Chief Counsel. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here. It, and it's Valo Health. Valo, thank you, thank you. I was, I was, I, I guessed wrong. It was one or the other. Mr. Troy's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, listeners may be aware more than 100,000 Americans at any given time are waiting for an organ transplant. The vast majority of these individuals are waiting for a kidney transplant, and their wait averages approximately five years. Every day, approximately 20 Americans die awaiting a transplant. In part because the U.S. rates below other developed countries, for example, 30% of kidney failure patients have a functioning transplant, and only 3% of patients have received a preemptive transplant, CMS recently announced three kidney disease demonstrations. This past January 1st, CMS launched the ESRD Treatment Choices Demonstration, designed in part to increase kidney transplants. This coming January, CMS intends to field the Kidney Care First and Comprehensive Kidney Care Contracting Demonstrations. Despite, despite these efforts, the optimal solution may be 3D printing of artificial organs. This approach was first demonstrated successfully in 1999 when Wake Forest's Institute for Regenerative Medicine implanted a bioprinted human bladder in a patient. With me again to discuss the state of bioprinting human organs and the state of related regulatory policy is again Dan Troy. So with that as background, Dan, I did provide a few uh, statistics, overview statistics on the state of the supply meeting the demand in organ uh, donations and transplants. I'll certainly uh, like to ask you if you'd like to add more about the current state of such. Sure. As you correctly noted, there are prop approximately 100,000 people um, on organ transplant waiting lists. Um, what you didn't mention is that in 2020, 39,000 organ transplants were performed. So obviously there's a huge mismatch between demand and supply. And as I'm sure most of your listeners know, really the most, the, the only, there are only two real sources of transplanting organs, which are Either someone, a willing donor has to die in order to donate an organ, and while 60% of U.S. adults are registered as organ donors, less than 1% of them die in a way that allows their organs to be safely transplanted. And then you, of course, have living donors, but that's a very small number as well. So um, globally, the WHO estimates that less than 10% of the transplant need is met, and then, of course, there's also the risk of organ transplant reje rejection. Um, chronic rejection of transplanted organs is the leading cause of transplant failure. Um, a, a, one doctor, the chair of transplantation bio biology at University of Pittsburgh, 
suggests that close to half of all organ transplants are rejected within 10 to 12 years. And of course, people who have transplanted organs often need to be on you know, very heavy series of medicines to uh, help deal with the, with the fact that there's an organ in their body that was not originally from their own body. Okay, thank you. I, I do have a, a follow-up on this, and that's uh, looking out, say, the next 5, 10, or, or longer years with an aging population, increases in chronic disease, for example, diabetes, and with increasing concerns about long-term effects of COVID, uh, particularly related as they relate to um, uh, kidney functioning, what's your sense of our ability to um, uh, uh, meet or attempt to meet the need for organ donation, say, again, over the next, say, five or ten uh, years? I, have to, I, have, I ask that question because it's implied I'm growing increasingly pessimistic about our even uh, uh, staying uh, where we are relative to um, uh, numbers of transplants. So you're talking about with, without bioprinting yes. of right. if, right. organs. If, oh, I, correct. I, I, I think we will, unfortunately, and I'm not a doctor, but um, and, you know, as you say, it makes just common sense that we're going to have with more diabetes, more obesity, with um, long-term implications of COVID, the, the, the demand for organ transplants and for kidneys in particular is likely to continue to increase and um, unfortunately, we have not really been able to keep pace in terms of, you know, either getting living donors, again, which requires an, ama an amazing sacrifice on someone's part, or, you know, we have a pretty good system when someone dies, if their organs are transplantable, you know, we, a lot of resources are brought to bear to try and get that, those organs transported as quickly as possible and into people, but it's, you know, it requires, as I said, you know, a lot of happenstance, a lot of luck. And so I think the demand is likely to rise and the supply is likely to stay relatively stable. And that's not a good long-term health situation, which is why if we can actually bioprint kidneys, which people are working on, um, that would be a tremendous advance for human health. So let, let's get to that. So let's get to the science or technology of this. And I'll just begin by asking you just generally, can you summarize first generally how, uh, how this is done? I, I do know in, in preparing or reading uh, the literature, this gets very complicated very quickly so, for example, bioprinting can be divided into four categories, including something termed stereolithography. Uh, we don't need to get into um, the exact specifics, but if you could generally describe for the listener, at least in theory, how is this accomplished? So I'm going to at a very high level because you probably understand the science a bit better than I do. The process just involves printing human tissue layer by layer using cells that are genetically identical to those of the recipient. What so scientists harvest these cells from a, the transplant recipient, so they're actually your own cells, and then they get grown in a lab, and then they use a 3D printer, much like the 3D printers, if anybody has seen a 3D printer of, you know, machine parts, um, to arrange these cells to create the tissue that the patient needs. Now, 
this technology is not there yet for kidneys, but as you mentioned, 15 years ago, we had the successful transplantation of a lab-grown human uh, bladder into a patient, actually, I think, into you know, more than the number of patients. Um, and the thrust of my op-ed uh, was that the FDA should be providing us the guidance that it needed for this nascent technology to grow. So, again, I'm not maintaining and again, I'm not a scientist, that we are right, that we're there now, and that if the FDA just, you know, got out of the way or the FDA just provided the guidance that we could instantly be transplanting kidneys into, bioprinted kidneys into people. But uh, there's a lot of progress that has been made. So, for example, in Israel, in April 19th, they actually, uh, in April of 2019, researchers in Israel bioprinted a 3D heart now, it's the size of a rabbit, so it's not ready yet to help human beings. This was a Tel Aviv university, but it has cells, it has blood vessels, it has the chambers and the other structures of the heart. And so it certainly seems to me, and again, I'm not a scientist, that within five to ten years, maybe ten years for a heart, maybe five years for a kidney, we will be able to have these... Um, these 3D bioprinted uh, organs, which would have quite a number of advantages. A, you wouldn't have to wait as long. Um, B, they would save the system money. And C, perhaps most importantly, because they're from your own cells, at least in theory, the risk of, re of rejection is much, much lower. And then the risk of your having to then having to take all those very, very serious medicines that people have to take to avoid rejecting the organ um, would probably be much less. So thank you. So let me just note, and I will note this when I post, you mentioned a piece you recently authored. This appeared in STAT. It's titled 3D Bioprinting Can Help and organ transplant waitlist if the FDA stops delaying, and that's June 18th. I will say, uh, you mentioned Israel. I went down the rabbit hole to some extent on this. Uh, so Rice uh, University, uh, bioprinted air sac, lung air sacs. Recently, uh, there's a, you mentioned a rabbit-sized heart, uh, a fully functioning but miniature uh, kidneys recently uh, been printed. Clemson has printed certain cells. I, I should say one of the advantages here is uh, skin cells, which can be printed and used to help help and or accelerate uh, healing from burns. Uh, you mentioned Israel. Poland has artificially uh, printed a fully artificial pancreas, and the list uh, goes on and on. And in fact, the interesting aspect to this is the um, space station has conducted some experiments to print 250 miles above the Earth because evidently there are advantages to 3D printing in anti-gravity or a zero-gravity environment. So there is a lot to this. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, heart, uh, human heart, there's um, uh, efforts to um, print livers, uh, heart valves. Um, so the list goes on and on. In fact, I thought this was particularly interesting. I didn't see much about this, but other than cartilage, human bones, or rather artificial bones, uh, are being uh, developed 
um, for uh, implanting. Um, so let's uh, let's leave it uh, at that. Uh, so you mentioned uh, FDA, and uh, in your stat article, you did mention a 2017 uh, announcement that the FDA intended to quote unquote review the regulatory issues related to bioprinting of biological cellular, et cetera. Uh, could you um, address that? So yes. I mean, now let, let's be take a step back. I am not. You know, a, I'm a big fan of the FDA. I was the FDA chief counsel. The FDA is 15,000 people who are tasked with regulating literally 25% of the U.S. economy. Right. You add up the amount of money spent on all food, drugs, cosmetics, animal food, feed, animal medicines, vaccines, biologics, all tobacco now, of course, right. all of that. You add, add that up and... That's 25% of the American economy, and the FDA is chronically under-resourced. Uh, I'll stipulate that. Um, and the people who wor- work there are extraordinarily hardworking and dedicated. Um, it actually, this is a little-known fact, has more MD, PhDs per capita than any other part of the U.S. government, including NIH. Um, so you've got smart people who are working hard, who have an enormously difficult task in front of them. That said, for an industry to really take off, it needs to have the regulatory guidance that FDA can provide so that people know how to test these products. They know what the regulatory paradigm is. Um, they know how to design the trials that would enable these, these products to have a pathway to market. And the challenge with 3D bioprinted organs is you know, think about the difference between a bespoke bioprinted organ that's from each person's own cells, which means naturally every person is different and there's enormous variation. Think about the difference between that and a small molecule drug, which is just a pill, which has the same chemical components that you can stamp out over and over again. So FDA is really built and the FDA regulatory regime is built to um, regulate those kinds of products, vaccines, which we really hope are by and large all the same. Um, and, and you know, you can walk through the factory and you can see each one come out, each one the same. This, again, these are going to be bespoke products, custom products. Each one will be different. And that doesn't fit neatly into the FDA's paradigm. That's point one. Point two is, as you know, and your, many of your listeners may know, FDA has different centers. It has a center for biologics mm-hmm. that would regulate like living tissue. Um, it, would re- it would regulate um, vaccines. Uh, it, va- it regulates you know, large molecule proteins. That's one regulatory paradigm. A completely separate regu- regulatory paradigm is administered by the Center for Drugs, um, which is more conventional, you know, small molecule drugs mm-hmm. of the kind that I talked about. Those centers have different cultures, different requirements, different, um, uh, different guidance documents. Um, and I've seen some arguments that actually both of them together should regulate 3D bioprinted organs because it's, it is a biologic 
but it can also be used to affect the structure the, the, the structure and function of the body of man or animal, which is the definition of a drug. My point in the article is not to take issue with FDA regulation of 3D bioprinted organs, although there might be an argument to be made there, whether it's in commerce, whether it's not. I, I actually think in cases like this, you need what regulation? You want regulation. The worst thing that could happen would be for this to be a wild west, someone to do something you know, unregulated and stupid, and it to kill people, and then you kill the industry. That's kind of what happened with gene therapy for um, quite a long time. So um, the, the, key, the, the key point is, let's all accept that FDA is going to regulate this. It should just tell us how it's going to do so whether it's going to do so as a biologic, whether it's going to do so as a drug, whether it's going to you know, be both, how its device, because um, it also has device authorities, mm -hmm. uh, plays in. Now, I don't think that a bioprinted organ is a device. It's going to be made, perhaps, with medical devices, um, and maybe there's a role of, of the you know, medical device um, authorities to you know, be brought in because one of the key things that FDA obviously would have to focus on is a relatively standardized process. If the if you can't if you can't manage the you know each if you can't assess each product as standard and of course that's the definition. It's these aren't going to be standard products. Mm -hmm. You want a standard process, and that may mean FDA, you know, ensuring that there are some kind of standard machines. Or that they've overseen the machines that are that are, you know, doing this, uh, the, the the 3D bioprinting. But the point is, until FDA tells us how they're going to regulate this and what the path to market is, it becomes difficult for companies to um, really, you know, think about how to scale this, and it becomes a bit of a break on investment. Um, if and 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 we would want people to be investing in this kind of technology given the promise that we sort of talked about at the beginning, um, the problems and, and, and the promise of the technology. Thank you. Excellent point that there's this sort of interaction between the reg and how you design and manufacture and take to market. You're right. I appreciate you're using the word a paradigm, although someday I'll have to do a, a podcast interview on I'm sure you know the Thomas Kuhn, the structure of mm -hmm. scientific revolution, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And the word paradigm is a very complicated uh, idea or word. But but your point well taken also that the paradigm here is this somehow falls between biologics and the device sectors. And so FDA obviously is going to have to think this through. I did read, and I don't know if you are aware or how much you know about, but there are, I read, some countries that actually maybe a little more uh, further down the road. And I did uh, see that uh, Japan, for example, has some related medical uh, device uh, regulation. Are you are you aware of what, in this uh, conversation, how other countries are, are designing uh, their regulatory authority? I really have not studied that well enough to okay. talk about Okay. All right. Good it. enough. Good enough. Uh, let's, there are a number of other related issues uh, relative to um, how this gets regulated. And before we uh, uh, formally started this interview, uh, we spoke briefly, and there is this issue of whether or not technically a manufacturer, even though it's 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 the person's own 
um, sales that created the product uh, under the current law that it is illegal to sell an organ. So explain this um, in this context. Sure. Um, I, I think this came, came out of the President's Council on Bioethics in the early 80s that was chaired by Leon Cass. But in 1984, Congress passed a law called the National Organ Transplant Act of 1984, which um, I'm quoting now, prohibits any person to knowingly acquire, receive, or otherwise transfer any human organ for valuable consideration for use in human transplantation if the transfer affects interstate commerce. Now, there are some libertarians who actually take issue with this and believe that people should be able to sell their organs, but we as a society um, have really decided that that's not what we want. We don't want people to be able to, you know, sell organs, certainly not on the black market, but even, you know, we don't want the inducement of money for people to, you know, be tempted to sell their organs, and it's illegal. So there's a technical question that one could, I guess, ask as to whether or not it's okay to, obviously, people would pay for this service of the 3D bioprinting of organs. I think it's pretty easy to dismiss that argument because the National Organ Transplant Act defines human organ as the human, including fetal, kidney, liver, heart, lung, pancreas, bone marrow, cornea, eye, bone, skin, or any subpart. And I think we can say that um, although the cells initially come from a human being, the degree of manipulation and the degree of sort of bioprinting and the organ itself is not really a human organ. Um, I, 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 you know, and this is the kind of thing that if a court were to perhaps misguidedly apply the National Organ Transplant Act to 3D bioprinted organs, notwithstanding the sclerosis in Congress, one might hope that Congress <laughs> would pretty quickly fix that. Um, but I think the better argument is that 3D printed organs are not human organs. Um, and there is actually a law review article um, that, that touches on this subject. Um, I'll see if I can get you the citation to it. But anyway, yeah, there's the, um, so this I issue has been at least discussed and thought about, uh, although there are clearly no decisions on it <laughs> because it hasn't come up. Okay, thank you. I, I did smile when I heard in one sentence you used the word uh, Congress and the phrase pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> so so uh, there is that uh, issue. Let me ask you, uh, because speaking of the Congress and, or this administration, rather, uh, the Biden administration is obviously putting a substantial emphasis on health equity, mm -hmm. uh, appropriately so. So... Uh, the question begged here is, at some point, uh, the science technology evolves, uh, FDA uh, formulates uh, uh, regulations, it's sufficiently enough, obviously, for the, for the technology to go mainstream. What's your concern about uh, the social stratification effect here relative to um, who gets these and who doesn't? It's, it's a really good question. Um, one of the additional benefits of bringing something into the regulatory, you know, sunlight, if you will, is the hope that you could then get payers to actually pay for this, mm -hmm. right? As long as it's really, really um, kind of niche, 
then it might be very hard to get payers to pay for it. And when I say, say payers, I obviously mean the insurers, right. health insurers to pay for it. And then it really becomes something that only the wealthy can, um, can access. So in, in any event, you know, for better or worse in our, in our healthcare system, it's always, you know, better to have more resources and likely, you know, initially these things would, you know, more likely be deployed, um, you know, among those who have resources. But I, again, I think the path to making this widely available is, you know, being, being regulatorily blessed and then trying to ensure that, you know, health insurers, including ultimately maybe Medicare and Medicaid, would cover these. Um, again, it is much less expensive, even now, to bioprint an organ than it is to go through the full costs that are associated with transplantation, which again includes the medicines, the risk of rejection, the treatment costs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, ultimately, one would hope that this technology could save costs and lives and therefore become widely available to everyone who needs it. You know, notwithstanding uh, also too rather, you know, quality of life issues here, um, not not insignificant. Let me let me just ask relative to uh, rejection, since you noted, uh, in my notes, I have half of new organs are rejected by recipient bodies within 10 to 12 years. Is, is, it, is it your understanding that um, that these types of organs would, um, I guess, if, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, would at least in theory last forever. I mean, at least in theory. I mean, um, nobody knows that yet. Although the the bladders that you noted at the beginning were, um, uh, there were um, in 2006, Dr. Anthony Atala and uh, the, the Wake Forest team. They implanted uh, lab-grown bladders in seven children who were born with bladders that were malfunctioning severely because of congenital birth defects. And my understanding is that those are still um, functioning. In the movie that um, that I'm in and that's, that features uh, something about bioprinting, it's a recent award-winning documentary called They Say It Can Be it Done. It can be done, right. Uh, they talk about um, one of the featured patients is a guy named Luke Misella, who is uh, featured. He was born with spinal bifida, and his malfunctioning bladder was causing kidney failure, but he's been able to have a full life instead of remaining on constant dialysis, and he's alive and thriving today. So um, in theory, again, I'm not a scientist, in theory, if it's your own organ and it's grown, you know, and constructed sufficiently robustly, it should last forever. However, even if it it needed to be replaced every 10 years, which is the case with certain heart valves, mm-hmm. um, I know my mother had one that needed to be, uh, needed to be replaced. Um, that's, especially today, there are ways of doing that that are much less invasive. That would be a tremendous advance. Uh, even if, you know, even if for some reason it failed after 10 years mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, could, and could be replaced. But having to find a new one from someone else, right, not a manufactured thing, not an engineered thing, 
that becomes, you know, a double strain on the system. You know, on the bladder, uh, I've been aware of this uh, technology or science for some while, and, and I immediately thought of a bladder because, and in reading the literature, it's basically a balloon, a sack. I mean, the bladder collects from the kidneys waste or urine, and it, that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, the pancreas, for example, or juxtapose, pretty complicated organ relative to what it does. So that's, this question was sort of a setup question, however. So relative to these, the performance, let's rephrase it, uh, thereof, of these organs, I'm, I'm sure this question has been asked, and it came to my mind, if you plant, implanted an artificial heart into somebody, um, you see where I'm going. The heart just, in theory, just continues to function indefinitely? Well, you're talking about a 3D bioprinted heart of their own or yes, correct. Yes. an artificial heart? No, no, a 3D bioprinted heart of their own. It's functioning. Would, would it, I, don't, you, I don't see why it wouldn't just keep going. Right, because you're, you're not going to contract congestive heart failure with a 3D bioprinted heart, right? I mean, that... You know, the common right. heart diseases that we know, which are the leading cause of death in this country, by the way, I mean, your heart, yeah. therefore, becomes immune, say, from stress, right? Theoretically. Theoretically. So there is, there is a, there is a, I think that's a massive ethical question, at least that came to my mind that's begged. Let me, uh, time for just one more quickly, if I could. Um, and this is the, uh, Maybe too technical, but I have a perverse interest in the USPTO question, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Um, I'm assuming you can patent the process of 3D printing a heart. You couldn't patent the product itself, meaning I wouldn't, if I received an implanted uh, organ, a bioprinted organ, it's, it's, someone else doesn't own it, correct? So that so that's correct. There are such things called process patents, as you right. note. Um, historically, people have thought that they're, they're not the strongest patents, but I think this kind of process patent would be pretty, pretty good, and it would also probably be married to IP around the machines themselves, right? Right. right? right. The, the, the things that you use. So, if I were, I'm not a patent lawyer, but I've had patent lawyers report to me, and if I had if I was constructing or working with a patent lawyer to construct a, a, a patent strategy around this, I would, we would look at a variety, a thicket of patents to try and, again, protect the process, protect the machines that were used and whatever other, you, you know, things that, that, that we had invented that were, that, that were used to make this, mm-hmm. the, the bespoke um, organs. Okay. But the organ itself, I mean, I, I don't think you can't get a patent in someone's cells. Right, 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 right. Okay, Dan, we're at our time. Uh, this fascinating uh, issue, subject, both again on the science and uh, how this eventually gets regulated. And so I appreciate this overview. And l- let me just be optimistic here and say uh, maybe we can revisit this after a couple of years and uh, break through here or there. And we might just, we just might be there. As my mother would say, my late mother would say, from your lips to God's ears. Right, right, exactly. So thank you again, Dan. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Talk to you soon. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. 
to comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.